Good job, Bo. That was great. And Carrie, thank you. That was wonderful. I'll tell you, I think we have only begun to see, you know, we go down to Operation Homeless and restart, and obviously we go down there to be a blessing to those people and to help those people, but I think in the short time that we've done it with the ones that have decided to come to church and be part of our work here, and then the dear lady this morning, you know, I think that it's a, obviously you can see it's a two-way street where we get blessed from them as much as hopefully they get blessed from us. So thank you. And Bubba, that was a great song, to, uh, not only to close out her, her poems, but to really open up what we want to talk about today. Now, last week, you remember we started 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so you want to go back to there today. It's an incredible chapter, and we're studying the book of 2 Corinthians simply because of the impact of that great book on, <clears throat> on teaching us how to minister. We're in the process of getting together a group that will uh, really dedicate themselves to working with people on that third level that they really understand how to deal with issues in people's lives and, and help them through the issues that they have. So we've been coming through this chapter and kind of noting uh, all of the counseling principles that you need, and you're putting those in the back of your Bible. But just as important, uh, we're trying to give you a running commentary of the book of Second Corinthians. You know, learning the Bible is, is so a key, and, and, and key to learning the Bible is being able to get into a passage of Scripture and, and not only understand it, but then to explain it back. As right after we made the announcements, one of our visitors came up, and a good guy uh, loves the Lord and is asking me a Bible question in the Old Testament. It's a very good question, and, you know, that's what we're about here, helping you figure out the Bible. And I told him, I said, you come back Thursday night, I'll give you the first question, and I'll take you into that passage and I'll show you exactly what you got. It's an incredible chapter that he asked about and, uh, you know, something that everybody can learn from. But that's, that's what we're about here, helping you get into the Bible and learn it. And that's what I want to do uh, in Second Corinthians. It, it won't be enough for you just to get a bunch of categorical principles down and get them into your Bible. You're going to have to see the aspect of dealing with people in ministry uh, on whatever level you're at. And, uh, you know, last week we, we started chapter 3. It's an incredible chapter, a chapter that deals with really the proof of our life in Christ. And we all, you know, everybody likes to talk about they're a Christian. And you, it would be it's hard to find somebody today that if you ask them if they're a Christian, that they wouldn't tell you they are because the definition of Christianity is so loose today and so completely outside the guidelines of the Bible. I say many, many times, it's it's hard to find a sinner today. And, uh, but they're out there, I guarantee you. And so this book is a great book because it deals with really the proof of our uh, life in Christ and, and really shows you and me what to look for in the central theme uh, in our own lives as a Christian that is the proof of that. And it's simply now we know is our ministry. This is what chapter 3 does. The chapter 3 basically shows us that the proof of our life in Christ and who we are is the ministry we're involved in. And it was interesting how we broke that down. I gave you four great principles that we learned last week of, of what we should be. And we need to remember them. And that was found in verses 1 through 6. 
And uh, we're going to build on them today as we move on down through this chapter. Now, today, basically what we're going to do in this chapter, and this is very important, we're going to basically work on your commentary of 2 Corinthians today. This is the passage that you need to break down. I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to break it down. We're going to see some principles, but most of this today is going to simply be you understanding what this chapter says, that you can understand it yourself first and then use it to help with somebody else. But I gave you four great principles we learned last week of what we should be. First of all, Bible talked about that we were to be able ministers. And, you know, that's a great study in itself in the Bible. All of these principles that I'm giving you here, they, each one of these could be taken and looked at into a study unto itself. You take the concept that we are to be able ministers. I remember years and years and years ago when I was a young guy myself, Mao Sabaka, my father in the Lord, he, uh, you know, he, he, he taught a message that I still remember, and he taught it about the book of, uh, the book of Exodus with Moses. And he was dealing with ministry, trying to get people motivated to minister, because many times the reason why we don't minister is simply because we're afraid to minister. We think we're inadequate. We think we don't have the, the things that we need to do. And it's a scary thing if you've never done it uh, for the first time. So he, like me, was trying to motivate people to understand the importance of ministry, yet he was coming at it from a different angle. He wasn't teaching the book of Second Corinthians. But he used this example that I give you today because the Bible says we are to be able ministers. And he used the life of Moses. And the life of Moses is an incredible, incredible life to study in the Bible. And you know how the story goes. God called Moses to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He basically called Moses into the ministry. And, ministry, and Moses looked at the dawning task that lied before him. He had to deal with Pharaoh. He had to go and lead a million-plus people. He had to deal with all the issues and all the problems that, and all the opposition that he was going to get. And I'm sure just as many of you have contemplated coming to Restart, contemplated getting into discipling somebody or getting into ministry, those same fears, you know, probably uh, are, are, are real in your life. And I will never forget that, that he, uh, he was, uh, God was saying, this is what I want you to do. And his whole conversation with God went like this. God was telling him what he wanted him to do. And Moses was telling God, I can't do that. And they go back and forth on and on. And, and suddenly, you know, God gives him the, uh, the stick that turns into a snake and gives him Aaron to speak for him. And, and you know, the rest of the story, he winds up being the, one of the greatest characters in the old Testament. God gives him the law and uh, he becomes the greatest leader of the nation of Israel probably that they, they had. And there's more books written about Moses and more in the Bible on him than almost any other man. But my father in the Lord that morning, he, he took the aspect of this, and he uh, speaking about able ministers. And he said that Moses was telling, God was telling Moses, this is what I want you to do. Moses was telling God, I don't have the ability to do that. I'm not able to do that. And in one of those moments when, as only as he could, he brought all of the things to crystal clarity that, that, that made the story make sense. He took that story and took the contemplation of you and me, at that point me, getting into the ministry. And I felt a lot of those same things because I didn't know if I was able 
And yet he said out of that great story, he said, ladies and gentlemen, he says, God wanted him to do something. Moses said, I'm not able to do it. And the truth of the matter is, none of us are able to do it. God never asked Moses if he was able. And God will never ask you if you're able to do the ministry. God wants to know if you're willing to do the ministry. And then he made a great statement. He said, if you're willing, God is able. And that's the great concept of an able minister. It isn't on your ability. It's on God's ability. And it's not on your ability as much as it is your availability. You have to first be willing, and when you're willing, it doesn't matter. And I take that story one step farther. Moses, <coughs> Moses didn't have any idea about ministry, much like many of you don't. And, and he said, God says, well, he says, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And God simply says, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And he says, well, I got this rod. And he says, well, we'll start with that. And do you realize it was that rod, that simple shepherd's rod that he had in his hand that God used for him to do the great wonders before Pharaoh in Egypt that really wound up bringing a nation of Israel out of bondage out of Egypt? My point is simply this. You don't have to be able. You have to be willing. And if you're willing, then God is able and God will make you an able minister and he'll take exactly what you got in your hand and start with. Exactly what you have in your hand that you're willing to give to him. And that's a great, that's a great principle. The second one we looked at was, was our sufficiency is in Christ. And this goes along with the other one because what makes you able minister is not your own ability but making Christ and God your all-sufficiency. When you trust in Him for everything that you have and everything that you've got, then He makes you all-sufficient in Him, and that makes you an able minister. And then the third thing we looked at is that we are ministers of life. Christians should give life to dead things. And in the Bible, uh, dead people are a picture of unsaved people. And that's exactly what our ministry is, in a nutshell, so to speak. It's that we are ministers of life, our sufficiency is in Christ, and we need to be able ministers, and what we do is we bring life to dead things. We talked about people who claim to be saved but never give life to anything. And how, you know, we live in a world today where, as I said earlier, everybody claims to be a Christian. Everybody says they're a Christian. But I told you that the word ministry is like the word love. It's not just a word, but love is an action and ministry is an action. And now we know from chapter 3 that the only proof you and I have that we're truly saved is the light that we give to others. And when there's no light given to others, then this is the problem that we have today. Now, these three teachings are the issue. We kind of put it into a context of chapter 3. These three teachings that we looked at are the issues that Paul had with certain members of this church in, in Corinth here. We talked about how not everybody is glad that Paul is there. And I'll tell you why that is. Because Paul, <clears throat> as a minister of life, was resurrecting a dead church. A church that was messed up and, and just about everything that they, they were doing. And he's trying to give life and resurrect a dead church <clears throat> But not everybody was happy about that. And I made the parallel that nor will everybody be happy with you or me 
when you try to do that. And we'll talk about that more next week when we get into another segment of this. Then the fourth thing. We now know that based on what we studied last week that we are now know that we are God's letter. We are God's epistle to a lost world. Your life and my life and what God has done, the Bible says, is a letter written on the tables of our heart that is read of all men. And it's this from this letter, this epistle, that we have our ministry. There can be no real ministry in your life and my life if it's just like the Bible. If there was nothing, if the Bible did not exist and we could not read the Bible, we'd know nothing about God, we'd know nothing about salvation, and we'd know nothing about uh, uh, anything that God did for us or ministry or anything at all. The Bible is crucial in our understanding of what God has done for us and wants us to do for them. Well, you take a person who is basically just uh, an unsaved person or maybe even a young Christian that that has just gotten saved, they don't know how to read the Bible. They may as well not have a Bible because they can read it, but they don't understand what they read. So what God has done for them is given them an easy book to read. You know what that book is? It's you and it's me. And once you let God do for you what he says he'll do, and you become a willing minister and you become part of that process, then God takes what he has written on the tables of your heart, and then he lets all men read it. And that's how he leads men and brings men and women to Christ and gives them what they need. And it's from this letter, this epistle, that we have our ministry. Now that makes it so clear, and we talked about this last week, that makes it so clear why so many people won't minister. And somebody says, well, how come so-and-so doesn't ever get involved and do anything? Or how come so-and-so doesn't do this? Or how come this couple doesn't ever really get involved in ministry? And the answer now, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is real simple. There's nothing to read. There's nothing to read. You see, we get the idea that ministry is doing something, and that's not true. Ministry is an action, but that action is based on an attitude of heart. And that's why we see the truth in this great chapter, and it's an incredible chapter. Now, let's pick it up in chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 12 today, and we'll continue to build on what we learned last week. Now, you're gonna, you're gonna, you people at the back tables are going to have a little advantage today because uh, uh, you're going to get a, another lesson in breaking how to break down your Bible one section at a time. So, when I'm done with this, because it kind of a, when you read it, it kind of looks a lot more complicated than it is, but it's like so many of those passages or so many of those stories, like the brother asked me this morning. Once you sit down and systematically break it down, then it becomes real clear, and that's my, my goal today, and that's what we're going to do. All right, here's what he says, starting, and we're going to go back to verse 6, even though we talked about verse 6 last week, put it into context, verse 6 down through 12. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, that's ministry, ministrating it, giving it to somebody. But if the ministration of death written engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. 
For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, which more that remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now, Father, help us today. There's men and women sitting under the sound of my voice today and under the influence of your Holy Spirit who want to be used of you to minister. And they want to, they want to take and they want to learn and they want to grow. And they want, to, they want to give back to you based on what you've given to them. They understand that their, their job now is to finish what you started. And they're willing. They're willing to do that. But you need to empower them to be able to do that. And the way that we accomplish that is to understand things like we're going to talk about today. And I pray, Father, that you'll bless them, give them what they need. Help me to lay it out clearly and, and plainly and help me, as the Bible says, to always use plainness of speech in what we do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in our study of <coughs> 2 Corinthians, we, we now know that it's the handbook of ministry. What we've seen so far, if, you're, if you've been keeping score here or kind of paying attention, we have seen a building of New Testament concepts on ministry based on God's dealing in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. We have seen the physical things that are in the Old Testament become illustrations or pictures of the New Testament principles that we follow. I, I've already told you, you're really going to see this when we get into our counseling uh, classes next year. And you're going to see how, and I've told you before, that all the stories of the Old Testament are actually stories that show you a picture and an illustration of a New Testament principle or principles that when you put them together, you get the answer to a lot of questions in life. Most Christians today have little to do with the Old Testament. One, it's too hard to read. Two, God's people today have no time to study the Bible. They have no sense of, of, of a historical aspect of the Bible. It's hard enough for to get them to read the Bible, what, 10, 15 minutes a day? I say in some Christians' life, 10, 15 minutes a week. Trying to get what you got to get and do what you got to do to get the magnitude of what the Bible says, uh, much of it depends on the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why, because basically, and most people don't even have a clue what I'm about to say, I'd say that 95% at least of the Old Testament is yet to be fulfilled because it's dealing with prophecy. And you're told over and over again uh, throughout the Bible, how important the Old Testament is. We were coming through 1 Corinthians. He told us there in one of the early chapters that the things that happened to the nation of Israel, the stories in the Old Testament, what did he say? They said they were for our examples and our examples. And that's very instructive for you and for me. And we've seen the parallels. We learned the great doctrine of the, of the New Testament priesthood. We understand now, or we should, that we as New Testament Christians are priests. And we minister to God's people. We minister to this world. But we understand that New Testament priesthood based on the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Remember we made the parallels back and I showed you how that the Old Testament priesthood in a literal form, what they did is exactly in a spiritual form what you and I did. We spent a whole day or a whole Sunday on that. We got that from looking at the illustration of the Old Testament. I talked about the Old Testament tabernacle. 
You can look back on our chart that Mike drew back there uh, when he did the story on it. And I told you how that that Old Testament tabernacle is a picture of, of your life and my life in Christ and our ministry. There are seven pieces of furniture in that tabernacle. And those seven pieces of furniture line up to the seven things in your life that furnish you to be the able minister that God wants you to be. That's why the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, it talks about the fact that the man of God, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for uh, instruction in righteousness and all that. Then it says this, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. See? Not finished, furnished. You know why? Because it goes back to that tabernacle. And it shows you that the same seven furnishings back there that were literal represent seven spiritual things in your life that you need to have the minister that are spiritual. Furnishings. Oh, yeah, the Bible. We, we talked about the, the literal sacrifices that the Old Testament nation of Israel had, six of them. And I've showed you from Thursday night before, and we talked about it that morning, how did they represent and they picture Christ's sacrifice for us. They're each different. Some are toward God. Some are toward trespasses against man. And we, we laid all that out. Then I showed you probably the greatest single concept of your life in Christ, and that is when you do minister or you do witness for God. We talked about how that we went back to Genesis where the first sacrifice, the first altar was made. And it says how that when, when Noah made that uh, sacrifice after the flood, that the, the smoke of that burning innocent flesh filled the nostrils of God. And the Bible says it was a sweet savor, and it appeared, peased God's anger. And I told you probably one of the greatest Christian principles of, of doing the ministry that you'll ever get your hands on. Probably did nothing with most of it, but it was probably the single greatest thing I ever told you about uh, how you do ministry. And it is the fact that you recognize that when you do the ministry, when you speak of Christ, it doesn't make any difference what the decision the person does. Oh, I want him to do right, but I don't get hung up and worry about people who don't do what's right. I just worry about me doing what's right. But that witness for Christ whether the person accepts it or rejects it, becomes a sweet savor in the nostrils of God, and God is pleased. We talked about that. You know, you find the example of this, and this thing, these kind of things are invaluable. They really are. You know, you find this in the aspect of, of your own life. One of the greatest things that has helped me today, keeping everything straight, is the patterns that God already set in the Old Testament. He told Moses in the book of Hebrews, when, he made the, when he, made the, uh, he made the tabernacle back there that we talked about, the Bible makes it clear that, that God gave Moses a pattern for that. God said, he didn't, didn't say, make something that you're going to worship with me. He gave him a direct pattern. And Moses was to follow that pattern, and that pattern sets a model for us that God always has a pattern to what he does. And when you realize that the Old Testament, even though it's literal and physical, it brings about the spiritual pictures of something that we're up against, you follow that pattern. My ministry is based on the pattern of my being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's my pattern. I build my church after the pattern of the church at Antioch. I do what I do based on the patterns in the Bible. That's why in time, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But at some point in your life, you need to learn these patterns because they'll be invaluable. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Now, in the world today, it, it would be hard to find anybody who even understands uh, the issues of, 
of the Word of God in the King James Bible anymore. I mean, it's, it's way past its point, and everybody has no clue of how valuable or in, uh, valuable the understanding the manuscript evidence surrounding the King James Bible. And I'm not going to get into that today, but I want to just show you very quickly how these things are so important, not just in your ministry, but in other aspects. I think it's, it's very important that you see that. If you would go to Bible college someplace, uh, you would be told that, uh, that, you know, this is where you're going to learn the Bible. You would be told that Bible colleges, higher institutions of, of learning, that's where, uh, you know, you're going to get it. And the Bible scholars and all of that are the ones that you want to get to. When you would uh, study uh, the Old Testament and start to come through some of those uh, classes, they would introduce to you a, a new word that you probably never heard before. It's the word, the Septuagint. And I don't mean to bore you with all of this, but I want to show you very quickly how this thing works. Now, the Septuagint is a Greek Old Testament. And scholarship today says that it was written 250 years before Christ showed up. Follow me now. And they say that Jesus himself used the Septuagint, which was a Greek Old Testament. Your Old Testament that Jesus did use was a Hebrew Old Testament, not a Greek one. And they say that Jesus used that. And so where the Septuagint doesn't line up with the one you have in your Bible, then they change that based on the Septuagint. And that's basically how they teach young men. And that's why you'll hear preachers all the time, or you'll read books all the time, or even in some of the study Bibles, it'll have a reading from the Septuagint. And that's what that means. Not that that's going to wake any of you up, but that's just what you're dealing with. Now, here I am. How do I know that? I've never been to Bible college a day in my life. Thank God. I, I never got, but, but I learned through the chain that the way God wanted me to learn it. Now, when I go back to the Old Testament, I find the pattern. And the pattern is the men who had the custodianship and the care of the Word of God were the scribes. The Bible talks about Ezra, who wrote the book of Ezra. It says he was a ready scribe. This is why some of the books in your Bible that were written, uh, were written, uh, the guy dictated them. He didn't write them himself. He dictated them to somebody else. In many cases, it tells you who, he, who it was because that man who was get, God gave it to wasn't a scribe, so he had to have a scribe write it down. Now, a scribe had to be part of the, here it comes, priesthood. And as a priest, a scribe was given by God the custodianship of the Word of God. He was given it to protect it. He was given it to, to write it, uh, copy it. He was, it, it, it only went to the priest class that were the scribes. Now, here we are today, and we find that, and we're going to talk about why here in a little bit, we find out today that uh, what happened today, for many, many years, the, the common man had the common Bible. But around the turn of the century, uh, something turns about here and happens, and we'll talk about it here in a little bit in another segment of this, and suddenly the common man has the common Bible taken away from him, and now it goes back to scholarship. And here we are today, all of us, common, ordinary people. And yet we are told that if you really want to learn the Bible, you have to go to a Bible college learn at least two foreign languages, which are the two hardest foreign languages to, to learn in the world, 
And then maybe then you can get a handle on the Bible, but I guarantee you there will always be somebody who are two weeks ahead of you studying it who will correct you on what you want or what you think it says. Now, you see how that pattern works for me? I know as I stand here, Bible colleges aren't worth the powder to blow them to hell. Seminaries are cemeteries. And the reason for that is based on a pattern that the custodianship of the Bible was never given to the scholars. It was given to the priest class. And who is the priest class? The church. The church. That's why down through church history, if you would know anything about it, you know that that's how your Bible stayed pure. That's how your Bible kept from being corrupted. It was guarded by the New Testament priest, the New Testament unbroken line of the church, and kept it all out. And today as we stand here, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if a guy's got a church of 10,000 people. Just because you get 10,000 people don't mean you got a church. I don't care what any of them says. I'm out of the line, out of that Bible that believes till today. And why would you let somebody take this from you? I still believe that God gave the common man, the common Bible. And I've said it many, many times. The most dangerous thing on this planet, and the devil knows it, is a common man with a common Bible. Now, we'll take that one step farther, go back to our little Septuagint. You're told in these Bible colleges, these eight bastions of orthodoxy, that the Septuagint was a Greek Old Testament that Jesus Christ uh, used. And you're also told, and they'll tell you this up front, that it was written in 250 B.C., 250 years before Christ. And they'll say that it was written by, uh, uh, by uh, uh, 40 guys who wrote, the, or 70 guys who wrote this, and it was written in 250 B.C., now, the average guy that doesn't know anything because he's sold his birthright and doesn't believe the Bible's the Word of God and never learned the patterns, he goes, ooh, ah, and he just about has a spasmic fit because that sounds so good. But those of us that know the Bible know this. We already know that the priest class were the only one who had the custodianship of the Word of God. I'll tell you something else. In 250 B.C., there wasn't anybody on this planet that knew where the priest class was. That priest class was lost at 606 B.C. when they went into Babylon and they came down and took the northern tribes into Assyria. And for 600 years, that priest tribe was lost. Nobody could find a priest. Nobody who could find the priesthood. Nobody knew who the 12 tribes were. They weren't anybody around in 250 years before Christ who knew anything where the 12 tribes were. Nobody knows where they were. Nobody certainly knew who the priest class was. So these 70 guys who wrote something that Jesus supposedly used violates the whole pattern in the Old Testament. They're not worth the paper they're written on. That's the way it works when you learn the patterns. Patterns in the Bible are very important. Very important. Now, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and you want to, it teaches us a number of great truths. But we want to begin to catalog some of these in your commentary here. It begins to focus on the things we talked about last week and then builds on them. The able minister concept, the ministry of life concept, the spiritual book written uh, on your heart versus the Old Testament Ten Commandments written in stone. Now, here's what it says. I want you to give you a basic uh, definition of it, and then we'll come back and, and take it apart. Now, chapter 3 tells us that any ministry in the New Testament is better than any ministry in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament, and it's simple, 
He's saying here in this chapter, what we're looking at today, and we're going to break it down here in a moment, so I want you to have it as a running commentary in your Bible. He's telling you that any ministry in the New Testament is better than any ministry in the Old Testament simply because the New Testament produces life and the Old Testament produces death. And I have another reason here that it's better And that goes back, and I want you to take your Bible and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Not only is the New Testament better because it produces life, but it's also better because it gives you light that they didn't have. Life versus light. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 talks about a more sure word of prophecy. Do you ever ask yourself why God doesn't do the great miracles he did back in the early Bible that he doesn't do them today? You ask yourself why there's no more burning bushes? Have you ever asked yourself why there's no more splitting in the Red Sea? Again, a pattern develops through the Bible. You're going to find from Genesis to Joshua, if you would take those books of your Bible and break them down, nobody does, but if you would, you would find from Genesis to Joshua that he does great miracles. There would be the splitting of the Red Sea. There would be the plagues coming down on Egypt. There would be the the water being turned to blood. There would be the hail and the fire and the sun and all of those things. And there in Joshua, there's where the sun actually stood still almost twenty over twenty three hours. Incredible things. But when you get to Judges, the next book up to Christ. You find nothing on that grandioso scale. You find nothing on that magnitude. You find God doing some miracles. You find people being raised from the dead. But you don't find any of the great stellar miracles that he did from Genesis to Joshua. And I guarantee you the average Christian doesn't know why. And I'll tell you something else. Once we get to Christ and then we get into the New Testament church, you don't see any. I guarantee you, you could have some terminal disease and God come down and and comfort you and and say, you know, well, uh, I'm going to give you another four or five years and you you wouldn't have enough ability to trust God. And you say, well, give me a sign. I guarantee you, God's not going to do to you what he did to Hezekiah, make the sundial go back 10 degrees. It doesn't happen today. You see the great stellar minister of miracles from Genesis up to Joshua and then from Judges, the next book, up to Christ, you see very few, nothing on that scale, and then you get into the New Testament and there's none. Ever ask yourself why that is? You see, Judges to Christ had something that Genesis to Joshua didn't have. And Our time period that we're living in has something that none of them have. And that is a more sure word of prophecy. Now that's why the New Testament is better than the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. Not only do you give life, you have the ability to give light. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. Now watch very carefully. It starts out in verse 18 and it says, and this voice. I'll just tell you right now. They're talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Man's trigger, Mount of Man's Transfiguration is in, uh, is in uh, Matthew chapter 17, if you want to put the reference back to it. And in, the, in Matthew chapter 17, in the Mount Transfiguration, if you know the story, 
They're standing up there, and Moses and Elijah, uh, they, see, uh, they see Christ uh, glorified before them, and then a voice, a voice speaks. Whose voice is it that speaks? It's God's voice. It's God's voice. And he says, this is my beloved son. He speaks. He speaks from heaven. And this is the reference they're saying here in verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And now this is Peter writing this, and Peter's writing firsthand because he was there. And then he says this in verse 19, based on what he said in verse 18. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, I'm not asking you to be an English specialist today in the English language, though I think you need to understand English structure to learn the Bible because the Bible in English is written in a perfect structural form. But when it says up there in verse 18, and this voice which came from heaven we heard, and it says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. My question to you is more sure than what? More sure than the voice of God, you see. In other words... He says there, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto, the sure word of prophecy, we do well that you take heed as unto a light, there it is, that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. That's the rapture of the church, Christ coming for the church. So you see, the reason why the New Testament is better than the Old Testament is not only do we give life, we give light. Because we have what they did not have in the Old Testament, and that is the completed Word of God. And once you have a more sure word of prophecy than the completed Word of God, there's no need for the miracles. The reason why God did the miracles in the first place is because they either had no Bible, or they had very little Bible, or they didn't have all the Bible. Once the Bible is complete, and you have the sure word of prophecy, more sure than God's voice, He doesn't do those things anymore. Now, you undertake that for you and for me, and realize that this is exactly what what makes the New Testament better. This is what he's trying to say. The New Testament is better than the Old Testament. We're going to get into it here in a moment because we give life and we give light. I don't have time to take you through the book of Hebrews today, but if you'd go through the book of Hebrews, you'd find the book of Hebrews is built around one word. It's found 14 times in the, in the book. It's the word better. And what the book of Hebrews basically does in a nutshell, it does, carries right along with this, it shows us that the Old Testament and the New Testament and makes the comparison. It tells us in that book of Hebrews, and it does it chapter by chapter, or at least segment by segment in some of the places, it shows us that in one segment that Christ was better than the angels. Now, why is that? Why did he have to make that distinction? I'll tell you why. Because in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, you and I are told when it came to the law in the nation of Israel, God carried out the law and the dispensation of the law through angels. And now he's showing you that Christ in the New Testament is better than that. He goes on in the book of Hebrews and shows us that Christ's spiritual priesthood is better than Aaron's physical priesthood. He even goes so far to compare Aaron's line with Melchizedek's line, which Melchizedek represents Christ's spiritual priesthood. And then he goes to show you how that Christ's sacrifice was better than the Old Testament sacrifices and how that they had to make him year after year after year after year. But the Bible says that this man, after made one effectual sacrifice for sins forever, then he sat down on the right hand of God. It's better. It's better. This is what he's trying to get across. Now, let's look at verse 6 and 7 here a minute. Going back to 
2 Corinthians 3. And here's where you want to put some of your notes in along this commentary. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, that would be the Old Testament, but of the Spirit, that would be the New Testament. For the letter killeth, that would be the Old Testament, but the, but the Spirit, that would be the New Testament, giveth life. Now, I, in my Bible, you know, I'm a pretty basic guy, and I learned this probably 30-some years ago. And so right there, just like I stopped and said, for the letter killeth, and I said, that's Old Testament. If you look in my Bible, you'd find right there by the word killeth, a little O-T with a circle around it. When you'd get to the, but the Spirit giveth life, you'd find a little N-T with a circle around it. That helps me never forget what he's talking about here. And that's very important. All right, look at verse 7. But if the ministration, now that big word just simply means our ministering. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, that's the Old Testament, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now let me stop right here and tell it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the Ten Commandments were, uh, he said, what he's saying here is that without a doubt, the Old Testament was glorious. I mean, come on. I mean, Bible says over there in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, that it was written by the finger of God. And he makes a reference down here that when Moses came down from the mount, I'm going to preach to you about this next week. When Moses came down from the mount, his face shone with God's glory. He's saying, absolutely, the Old Testament was glorious. It was. But here's the key. Look at the last part of verse 7. Which glory was to be done away. You see, the Old Testament was glorious, and it was a glory, but it was only a temporary glory. Because it was physical, it wasn't spiritual. Hey, it comes back to that thing I taught you in Bible basics, and I've taught you from the time many of you have known me, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And I'll say it again. At some point in your life, you don't get that down, you ain't going anywhere when it comes to the Bible. All right, verse 7. Verse 7 said, if the Old Testament, letter of the law, ministration of death, if it was glory, now look at verse 8. How much, how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? Now what he's saying is this. He's saying if the Old Testament was glorious and it ended in death and it ended, how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? In other words, more than glorious. And that's exactly what he's saying. Going back to last week, we saw the New Testament ministry of the Spirit is life. And it's better than the Old Testament letter of the law. Because the Old Testament simply couldn't save you. Now, you're going to find here that it tells you over and over again that the ministration of the Old Testament was death. And I I want to explain that. Because it kind of leaves you thinking about some things and it's easy to think the wrong thing. When it says it, the, the law brought you to death, it simply means that there was no salvation in the law. When a man died in the Old Testament, he went to Abraham's bosom. The other name or the technical name or the Bible name for Abraham's bosom is death. That's where they went. And where the Old Testament couldn't save you, It could not give you the eternal life because the law was only temporary till Christ came. When Christ came, he not only fulfilled the law, but he took away the law. Now, let me show you something else here. And there's so many little things in here you want to catch. Going back to you and me as ministers. Look at verse 8. 
Here's something else. Look at that word in verse 8, the word spirit. See that? Now look up in verse 6. You see the word spirit again. That's the same spirit in both cases. That's not God's spirit. That's our spirit. It's the spirit of the one who's ministering life to people. And listen to me. Based on the, based on the New Testament, here's how it works. We already know now from verse 7 and 8 that what he's telling you there, and you want to get that verses down, that he's telling you that the Old Testament or the New Testament is better than the Old Testament because the Old Testament gives you death. It, it's, it ended. The New Testament gives you life. And now we add another word to it based on 2 Peter. It gives you light. And here's how it works. Here's how it works. When you and I have the right epistle written on our hearts, when you and I do what the Bible says, and we talked about it last week, and we now know that you're a book written, good or bad. And I told you last week, some of you, when people read your life, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a manifestation of, of hope. It's a manifestation of light. It's a manifestation of life. When some people look at other people's lives that say they're Christians, it's a horror story. It's one bad choice after another, one failed marriage after another, one bad mess after another. In some cases, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy. In some cases, it's an absolute X-rated novel. I mean, it's, it, when people see you and they know that you're a Christian, listen to me, they're reading you. And when they know you're a Christian and what they hear from your mouth doesn't line up with what it's supposed to be, well, this is the problem. When you and I have the right epistle written on our heart, here's what it does. It forms the right spirit, our human spirit, with God's spirit. This is why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the the great missing element today, and I go back to what I said last week, So many people claim to be saved, but I'll tell you what's missing in their life. And I never pay attention to what people say. People say anything. I read the book because it's the book that tells you what you really got. And most people never, they don't figure life out that quickly. They listen to, oh, what these people say about how much they love God and they do this and they do that and how much I love him. I don't listen to what a person says. I just read the book. And it tells you everything you want to know. That's called in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the witness of the Spirit. And I don't find that much today. I've been in places around the world in years gone by when I was, did ministry and missions around the world in just about every country on this planet. And I would stay with people in Romania or South Africa or uh, in, in wherever. And I would stay with people who did not speak the English language. But they were saved Christian people. And I couldn't ask them where the bathroom was. They didn't know any English. I didn't know any whatever language there was. And yet, you could feel the bond between the two of you that there wasn't a time that you weren't communicating. And that is the witness of the Spirit. And that's missing today. That's what you don't see today. You see, it's that Spirit with that epistle that God takes and ministers to people through you. You remember a couple of months ago, it was, I think, on a, a, when, a Thursday night Bible study, we talked about Job chapter 26. And remember, I showed you that passage back there, and I said, there's a good chance these are the six questions that are going to be asked at the judgment seat of Christ. 
And the last one of those questions, if you remember that study, and some of you probably already have it in your Bible, what was the last question that he asked? Raise your hand. What was the last question? What was it, Josh? Uh, Whose spirit came from you? You betcha. Let me tell you something. A bad spirit in God's people will do more to work and wreck any work, any place you're going to find. It'll always be an issue. I've been in churches. I've been places in times past and, and experienced it where you get one family, sometimes husband and wife, sometimes it'll be one person, and they get their nose bent out of joy about something. They don't get what they want the way they want it. They think that life's all about them, and they want the world to revolve around them, and when it doesn't, they get a bad attitude, and that bad attitude produces a bad spirit. And you know what? You can feel it in everything you do. You can be down there ministering and all of a sudden that person walks up or gets into there or walks into the room. Hey, I've been in church services where everything is going fine and one family walked into the room and it was like somebody turned the air conditioner on to to 28 degrees below zero. That's the way it works. And that's what he's dealing with in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's what he's up against. He's up against... People in his church who don't appreciate what he's trying to do, and they're bringing in a bad spirit. Now look at look at look at verse nine. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, that's the Old Testament, death not life. Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. That's the New Testament. He's saying again, and he says it over and over again. This is what you got to break it down. You got to get this commentary. You got to get this thing, this passage. Someplace down the line, you'll have to teach this to somebody, show this to somebody, so you might as well learn it now. He's saying if there was glory in the giving of the law, which brought condemnation to them that received it, how much more glory is there in the giving of the gospel, which giveth life and giveth light? Now, one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Bible. And I think that in time, every Christian ought to take it. It's the great study of law versus grace. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible. Lester Roloff, who was a great preacher. He died uh, many, many years ago in a plane crash, flying from one place to the other to preach. But Lester Roloff, you can still find tapes on him, and I'm sure you could find this on the Internet someplace. Well, one of the, he preached a lot of good messages. I heard him preach a message one night on hell at a camp, youth camp, and they were under a big tent. And while he was preaching on hell, preaching on God's judgment, a big storm came up and blew the poles off of that tent right in the middle of his sermon. That tent collapsed and all the lights went out and it fell down on everybody. Boy, don't you know they had an altar call that night. <laughs> they did. He was an incredible guy. One of my favorite sermons he used to preach was, the. he always had great old-time Philadelphian practical names to his sermons. One time he preached on the death of Absalom. And you know the story of Absalom. He, he got caught right, running there from God and, and he got caught in a tree with his hair because he had beautiful hair. And he, he hung in a tree and he died and somebody went and shot him an arrow. And so he's preaching on the death of Absalom and tied it into worldly godless Christians and he simply titled it And the Mule Walked On. <laughs> Great sermon. Great sermon. He got a great message I heard one time on the study of law versus grace. And he put it into the context of, of a message simply called Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. It's incredible. 
Let me show you a great example in your Bible. And you want, you'll want to put this in. This is, this is why I love the Bible. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 18. Most people don't know what's significant about that. But I'll tell you what's significant. You want to put this note in your Bible there. This is the first great judgment of God's people under the law. Moses just got the law in chapter 20 of Exodus. Here we are, chapter 32. You know what happens. You just saw the Ten Commandments a couple of weeks ago. This is where he goes up on Mount Sinai to get the law. And he gets the Ten Commandments, made by the finger of God, and he comes back down and, and uh, he, he walks down there. And you know what happened. He'd be gone for 40 days and, and they really got out of whack and did everything wrong. And now they, they think he's not coming back. So like most of God's people, they, they, they don't respond well to no leadership. And so they, they basically find themselves with a golden calf. And they, they turn in all of their bracelets, their earrings, their nose rings, and everything, you know, and melt it down and make this beautiful golden calf, and they're all worshiping it. And when Moses comes down, you know, he's hot. And uh, he comes down through there, and he sees what the people does, and he calls down the anger of God. Now, keep in mind, this is the, this is the first judgment. This is the first, listen to me, the first judgment in the Bible of God's people under the law. And the Bible tells you down there in in Exodus chapter 32, verse 18, when God came down and whacked everybody, God killed 3,000 people. See that thing? The law represents death. The law represents death. Now watch this. You come over to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. In the New Testament now, the book of Acts is under the ministry of life and light. The book of Acts starts in the New Testament church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, this is the first great act of God's grace and salvation, not under the law. Because that was death. 3,000 people died under the law in the first one. This is the first one you find under grace where there's life and there's light. And look at it down there in verse 41. 3,000 people got saved. See that thing? First one under the law, 3,000 people died. First one under grace, 3,000 people got saved. That's some book you got there. The study of law versus the spirit. Now look at verse 10. He says, verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. By reason of this glory... That excelleth. Now, what he's saying here, for even that which was made glorious, Old Testament, had no glory in this respect. By reason of this glory, that'll be the New Testament. I want to get this down so you can get it together. He's basically saying there's really no comparison between the two, even though there were glory in both. Verse 11 says, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. You see that? The Old Testament, and this is so key, the Old Testament is done away, but the New Testament, it remained because it's eternal. And where the one represented death because it couldn't save you, the New Testament represents life, and now we also know light. And you want to get this down. The aspect that makes our ministry of life and light better than the Old Testament letter of the law is that the Old Testament was taken away, and ours remaineth because it's eternal. Now, you want to put with that this reference here and turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 17. Now, you're going to find, as you broaden your horizons a little bit, and you find out what's going on out there in the Christian world, in the world, you're going to find there's some heresy groups out there that, that uh, still put themselves under the law. 
And every once in a while, you don't bang into them too much, but every once in a while, you're going to find a group called the Seventh-day Adventists. I call them the Seventh-day Disadvantages. And they meet on Saturday. They don't meet on Sunday. They think that Jesus Christ is important, but they still think that we're under the law. So they meet on Saturday. Uh, You're going to find, if you study uh, religions, that the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Episcopal Church, they all came out of the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation, you'll find that they all have a a literal Old Testament-style priesthood. They all have priests uh, that that are not just the common people. They don't recognize the common people as anything. Their priesthood is fashioned after the Old Testament because they much have a lot of New Testament and Old Testament deals. That's just the way it works. That's why Protestant churches, for time and eternity, has always called Sunday the Sabbath. I mean, it's not that Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday was the Sabbath. But when you try to mix the match, that's what happens. But when you understand what I'm telling you, and then you add to it Colossians 2, you've got to be brain dead on life support with a plug pole to figure out where they're coming from. Now look at verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of the ordinance that was against us, there's the Old Testament, which was contrary to us, there's the Old Testament, and took it out of the way, Old Testament, how? Nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, that's the devil and his crowd, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man, therefore, because of what he just said, verse 13, 14, and 15, let no man, therefore, judge you in meat, that would be Old Testament meat offerings, or in drink, the Old Testament drink offerings, or in respect to a holy day, or a new moon, or of the Sabbath days. And then he says this in verse 17, which is a little theological thing for you to work out, which are a shadow of things to come. That's going to mean that they come back in the millennium, But look at the last part of that verse. But the body, that's you and me right now, is of Christ. There's no Sabbath in the church age. But there's one coming back. You'll go back to, you want to put this verses in here too. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 through 15 and Hosea chapter 2 verse 11. In those two passages that tells you in no uncertain terms that God himself, before they went into captivity, has put away the Sabbath. Then we as ministers of the New Testament life by our spirit and from the epistle written on our heart with the glory that remaineth because that glory is eternal, better than the Old Testament tables of stone that produced death and condemnation. We minister eternal life to people from an eternal priesthood that leads to eternal life for all of eternity and gives them light and gives them life. Now, The last thing I want to show you here, and don't get nervous because it may be the last thing I'm going to show you, but it'll be a few minutes here, is this is how we give it out. You don't want to miss this. Look at verse 12. Now, we've got everything broken down for you. Now, we're going to go practical. You have what you need to have to get everything broken down in this chapter. Look at verse 12. Now, we're going to get into a little practical sermonette here. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now, do you notice how today and any time that you're around me, and this is no great character quality of mine, it's just that I'm so, you're so blessed that I am so stupid that I have to do things this way. 
Did you notice how this morning that you have to be pretty much close to have an IQ below subplant life not to get what I broke down in that chapter? I broke it down almost word by word. I told you what to put where. I went back and defined it. I spent ample time giving you every one of those chapters. You know why? Because the Bible says that when you teach the Bible, we have to use great plainness of speech. I learned many years ago in ministry and teaching people the Bible, you don't do anybody any good if when you're done, nobody understands what you just said. Now, you may have impressed yourself. And there may be people out there that you may have impressed. But I'm not here to impress myself. I'm not here to press anybody else. I'm here that when you leave today, you got something out of what I said. If that didn't happen, in many cases, that's my fault. In some cases, it'll be your fault. You quit texting and doing your crossword puzzle, you'd probably get something out of it. But in ministry, you use plainness of speech. And in ministering to people and teaching them the Bible and counseling, which is something you're going to do, you use plainness of speech. I wonder sometime what part of that pastors and teachers who minister don't really understand. For 1,800 years, and this is not a criticism, it's just the truth. For 1,800 years, the Roman Catholic Church only gave their mass in, in Latin. And, and you know, buddy, Latin's a dead language. Nobody understands Latin unless you're part of the hierarchy. Nobody speaks it anymore. So no wonder Roman Catholics know nothing about their Bible. For 800 years, they went to church and heard a message from God in a language that nobody could even understand. And that caused the Catholic Church a lot of issues. They were losing people going to other churches because they weren't getting anything. And that's when they put Vatican II in effect in 1968. And in Vatican II, that comes to the point where uh, they put now the Mass in English. And everybody can understand it. You don't do anybody any good when you're done telling them about God or they're scratching their head wondering what you just said. Now, Baptist churches today do the exact same thing. And we have a crowd today out there uh, that has really taken over the mainstream of, of what's left of Christianity. And they're called the Neo-Orthodox group. Or excuse me, Neo-Evangelical group. Now, Neo means new. And uh, I, I'm, I'm about ready here, I think. John sent me chapter 15 here this week, but uh, hopefully uh, for the end of this year, my goal is to have our, our book out on church history. And it's probably one of the, uh, just for the combination of everything that happened, uh, somebody asked me the other day, are you ever going to do church history again? And I, and I don't think I ever will, because I don't know if I could ever do it any better than I just did it. I mean, it's one of those times when everything came together and it just, it worked out and it, it was one of those things and we're putting it into a book at this point as we speak. If I do anything from this point on, what I'd like to do is go back and take segments of church history and expound on them to amplify the whole aspect of it. And I've got in my mind someday to write a, a book that deals with a segment and it's probably, and I know that most of God's people care less about history, you're too busy worrying about who got voted off dancing with the stars or you know all that stuff but to me i don't think you can grab the bible and understand the bible without grasping history and i i look at the 1880s that 20 years from 18 we'll say 1850 to 18 to 1900 i think they're 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 the most key points uh and a great turning point in in where we're at today and I would name that book Decade of Death for, 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 for Bible Christianity because that's really what it's spelled. 
Most people who don't look at history and pay no relevance to where we're at today, they don't really stop and see what came about from 1880 to 1900. And yet, I can tell you that the reason why Christianity is the mess that it's in is because of this 20 years right here. First of all, around the 1880s is when Westcott and Hort finished their revision and came out with what came to be known as Nestle's Greek text, which was based on the corrupt Vaticanus and Sidicanian manuscripts, what now was going to go into every Bible college. Not only was that, but in 1888, that's when everybody dumped the King James Bible and went to the first translation that was based on Westcott and Hort's text, from which every new translation comes hereafter, the RSV. Most people don't know that it was at that particular point in time that neo-orthodoxy, around 1880, 1890, what the new neo-orthodoxy came about to be. And neo-new, new orthodoxy simply means this. This is the group of people who believe that have taken over the liberal side of everything in, 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 in Bible today. They basically teach that the Bible is an evolving book. They say that you need to change the message and change the preaching and change the church to go along with changing society. That's why you got lesbians that are pastors and homosexuals that are pastors because our society is changing. Therefore, we need to accept that. And therefore, there's nothing wrong because we need to change the church, change our teaching, change the Bible to go along with changing society. When the truth of the matter is, the Bible is a preservative. It's a soul. It's the only thing you got that gives your sanity in an, un- an, un- in a- in an insane world. But that's neo-orthodoxy, see? God is sovereign, absolutely, and he never changes. The Bible says Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever. Somebody said, well, that's talking about the man Jesus. I said, no, it's not, because that's not true if we're talking about Jesus, because he was a baby, then he was a teenager, and then he was a man. Then he was glorified. So he wasn't the same today, yesterday, and forever in a physical form. That's talking about her sovereignty of what he taught Now, that's also the beginning of the charismatic movement. But in the midst of all of that, if you miss it, now comes the beginning of the Zionist movement, which is the last step in God bringing the nation of Israel back. It's an incredible study. But this is what neo-evangelism was founded in this time period. And it was basically to take back the common man and separate him from his common Bible. To take it from the priest class, which we now know from the pattern is God's program, and put it back into the, into the world that we have. You know, we get our Bibles from a place, we, our wide margin Bibles and all of our Bibles, we get them from a place in Milford, Ohio called First Word Publishing. Do you know why First Word Publishing was started? And there's a number, hundreds and maybe thousands of churches around the world that do exactly what they do. Do you know why they did that? Because they realized that the custodianship of the Word of God was given to the church. They had places like Zondervan, Oxford, and all these places that were were secular worlds. Secular publishing companies, publishing the Word of God. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, the local church's responsibility and job is to publish it. And that's why they started those ministries. And that's why we, that's where we buy our Bibles from. It's just that simple. And it's a thing where this is, you know, so when a young man wants to learn the Bible today, he can't go to get it like you do. He can't go to his church. He has to go to the scholars who help him with the Word of God and then charge him forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to give it to him. Whatever happened 
Hey, I know churches in this city that if you want to get married, the first thing they do is check your tithe record. And if you don't tithe, you don't get to use the church. Now, I think every Christian ought to tithe. I think that's a biblical principle. But if you don't, that's not because I'm going to penalize you for it. I'm not going to say, well, you can't use the church. Somebody says, well, I want to come in and get married. I'm not going to check your tithe record to see if you tithe or not. That's not my responsibility. The reason why some of you have lost your job and are in financial mess you're in is because when you had a job, you didn't give God what was due, so he just took it back from you. You haven't figured that out yet. Probably never will. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to say, dearly beloved, here we are. The fight is on. Somebody asked me one time, you know, you do a lot of weddings and you do a lot of funerals. What do you like to do better? And my answer was instantaneous. I like funerals. Why? Because he thought, he thought because, you know, it's a great place to preach. And it is. But I just said, no, I like them because funerals are more permanent. I've done lots of marriages that didn't work out. I've never done a funeral that didn't work out. <laughs> Whatever happened to, I mean, I know churches that if you want to get discipled, it costs you to get discipled. you got to pay to be discipled. I'm telling you the truth. I know churches that if you want to get, you die and you want to use the church to get buried, they charge you. That's what they do. You want to get married, they charge you. They charge you a fee for the church. I don't know what the church's job is anymore. I'm about as confused as I can get. How many wants to go and get into a Bible institute? They want to grow in a church. Yeah, we'll teach you $400 a semester. What? Whatever happened to freely give because you freely received? Whatever happened to that? But that's why churches charge for everything. Because they think that it's just like everything else out there in the world. But what you get is far from what Paul and Jesus gave us. You come to Thursday night Bible study this week and you say to me, I want to study angels. Somebody says, I want to study the depravity of man. Somebody says, Bob, teach me about salvation. Somebody says, Bob, teach me church history. Somebody says, oh, I want to study the person of Jesus. Somebody else says, I want to study the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, no, I got those doubts. Bob, teach me how to preach. Somebody says, I can preach, but Bob, teach me how to teach the Bible. Somebody says, well, that's all good, but Bob, what I want you to teach me is practical application to the scriptures. Now, if I come there, I'd come there and say, all right, let's talk about, let's talk about angels. If you're in Bible college, it's not angels, it's angelology. If I'm going to teach you on Thursday night, I'll teach you about man. But you go to Bible college, it's anthropology. Somebody says, well, I want to study salvation. I'd take you back and give you the 12 doctrines like I did. No, no, no. There it's called sodiantology. Well, I want to study church history. That's eschatology. See how nice that sounds? Rolls off your tongue. Eschatology. Somebody says, I want to learn how to defend the Bible. That's apologetics. John Wayne said, never apologize to anybody. <laughs> Somebody says, well, Bob, I want to study Christ. That's Christology. Somebody says, teach me about the Holy Spirit of God. That's pneumonology. Somebody said, I want to preach. That's hermeneutics. Or in many preachers' cases, hemorrhoidnutics. Somebody says, well, I want to learn to teach. That's exegesis. 
Somebody says, teach me the principal things of life. That's hortatory. That's hortatory. You see, you spend $40,000 to learn to talk like nobody in the Bible ever talked. Did Paul ever talk that way? Did Jesus ever talk that way? You see, the Bible says, seeing then we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. There's a great emphasis today, a great emphasis today in Christianity to make it cultured and refined. You're going to find four great principles in your Bible. First of all, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17 says, For we have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Boser, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking, that's not the preacher, that's the animal. <laughs> the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbid the madness of the prophet. These are wells without, got to make those things clear. You, want to put that, you don't want to put the wrong note in your Bible on that one. <clears throat> See, Look at verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. That's what it does. People like to hear great oratory words that they don't know what they mean. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6, he said, Though I be rude in speech and not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. He said, I may not have perfect English, and I may have used ain't, and I may have used some bad grammar, but brother, when I was done, you knew exactly what I was saying to you. Now, this crowd in Paul's day didn't appreciate any of that any more than they will in our day. Then they said about Paul, he says, For his letters say that they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is, oh, it's contemptible. God's people are the stupidest people on the planet. You go to church where a guy lives like a king, speaks like a politician, and gives you skim milk every Sunday, and you think it's good. You deserve each other. One of the greatest studies you ever take in the Bible and picking the right pastor is study two patterns. Study Saul and study David. Jude 16 says, these are murmurings, complainers walking after their own lust. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person. And there it is, in admiration because of advantage. In other words, they get you to admire them, and then they take advantage of you. That's how it works. No, I'm not political one way or the other. I don't care who wins the election. But you know how Obama, Obama got in the White House? You know how he got in the White House? Because he's a great speaker. And he is. He's a great speaker. Boy, he's got a silver-tongued devil, that boy is. He can speak, man. I like, I appreciate that. That guy can put it out. And that's what people, they listen to that. They hear that. He promises everything. He's, it rolls off his mouth, all he's going to do. Everybody thought that it was going to, I mean, they, hey, come on. In the news media, they, 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 and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but the bottom line is they coined him as the, the, as the, as the Messiah. It's how you speak. But remember the words he says there. It's, it's, it's using plain speech. Now, I, 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 this is why Paul, if he were alive today and walked through the first Baptist church of Kansas City, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. <laughs> Do you ever notice how people like to associate with people the path to lend themselves credibility with people? When I was growing up a, year, a couple of years ago, and some of you remember this, every president candidate compared himself to Harry Truman. Harry Truman had a, the buck stops here. That sounds great. He had it on his desk. And I don't know if it was true or not. I, I was just a kid. And when I was a kid, it just didn't work for us. We didn't have any bucks. So I don't know how it worked. But everybody wants to be like Harry Truman. Hard line. Ended the war in Korea. Fired MacArthur. The buck stops here. 
See? So politicians who are wimpy, they got to associate with somebody that's not. Now, today it's Ronald Reagan. But everybody wants to be like Ronald Reagan. And I remember Ronald Reagan, you know, became president. Some guy said, well, Ronald Reagan, the worst president in the world. And I said, well, I think he's going to be a great president. Why is that? And I said, because anybody that can be on Death Valley Days for 22 years is going to make a good president. Right. <laughs> Most of you don't even know what Death Valley Days was. It's the same with Paul. Listen, if, people, if Paul preached in churches today, he'd be thrown out in 15 minutes. I mean, that's the problem he had in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul told you exactly what you were and where you were at. The Bible says he marked those that caused division. He named names and gave out telephone numbers. And he dealt with sin in God's people's lives and he never swept it under the carpet. You go down through church history, you'll find two of the greatest preachers of the great preaching era uh, was two of the most plain speaking preachers you ever heard. And they were hated by the neo-evangelicals and they were hated by the Edgerated Cloud. One of them was Sam Jones. A Methodist preacher that would tear your hide off. And Sam Jones, for his day, was not afraid to call you a suck egg hound. Whatever that is. And boy, he would flat preach to you and he'd put it down. And you may not have liked it, but when you left, you know exactly what he said. I'll tell you another one was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday took on the whole liquor-drinking crowd. And Billy Sunday, single-handedly, by his preaching, brought in prohibition. In his day. And he had no problem calling people hog-jowled liquorheads. My favorite's old J. Frank Norris. He's called a Texas tornado. That old boy took on the Southern Baptist Conventions and the Dallas uh, Fort Worth uh, uh, politicians. And, and boy, I'll tell you what, it was incredible. One time to his church in Fort Worth and Dallas there, he t- announced to them and it was full of corruption. It was full of booze. It was full of prostitution. Everybody was corrupt. He got up in his pulpit and he told his people that the next Sunday he was going to announce the three biggest scoundrels and crooks in, in Fort Worth, Texas. And he did. He named the mayor. He named the city, head of city council and the police chief. And boy, he named names, gave out addresses, phone number, and he listed their sins. And he spoke plain. Can't do that today. One time a corrupt businessman who was big in the liquor crowd, Jay Frank called him out and exposed him. And he called, the man called out uh, publicly for somebody to kill Norris and, and to shoot him and to kill him. Norris found out about it, got up in his pulpit the next week and actually said, don't you folks worry about him killing me. You better worry about God killing him. And the next week, true story. The man was out with some gal that wasn't his wife. They were drunk as a skunk and driving fast down the road. They hit another car, turned over, blew into flames, and decimated them and decimated the cars. And body parts were splattered all over the place. And Billy uh, and J. Frank Norris went down to the crash site, scooped up some of that guy's brains in a mason jar, put a lid on it, and brought it to church the next Sunday, put it on the pulpit, and preached on the wages of sin is death. Now that's plain preaching. One time, Peter Cartwright, he lived back in the 1700s. He was getting ready to have a service, and they were standing around him. And Andrew Jackson, the great general, came in to hear him preach. And somebody came up and said, oh, Mr. Cartwright, I just want you to know that that the great Andrew Jackson, General Jackson, is going to be in our congregation tonight. And Jackson was about halfway back coming down looking for a seat. And old Cartwright blurted out as loud as it can be. And he says, you tell that You tell that godless sinner, Andrew Jackson, if he doesn't get saved, he's going to split hell wide open just like some guinea-stealing sinner, boy, and put it right to him. And Jackson heard every word that he said. 
Wow, now that's plain preaching. Put it down where they get it. Real Bible preaching and Bible ministry has always bore the distinction of being plain and to the point. This is why there's no preaching today. Because it's uncultured. It's uncivilized. I knew a guy one time that was one of the greatest probably. He actually was probably as close as it could get today of what it was back in the book of Acts. This guy was an incredible guy. He would witness to anybody. He was unorthodox. When he preached in churches, he, back then he wore a suit and tie. He wore a leather vest and he'd just get up there and he flat put it to you. And I remember that churches liked to have him. And I remember the church I was at at that point had him in one time and before he got up to preach, the pastor would always take 10 minutes and prepare the crowd and explain. Now this guy's a little different. This guy's a little wild. This guy's a little weird. I sit there and said to myself, no, this guy is exactly what we're supposed to be. We're the weird ones. We're the ones out of touch. He's exactly what my life and our life should be as Christians today. But he wasn't cultured. This is why there's no revivals today. This is why there's no power today. This is why there's no power in God's people's lives. You see, ministry starts with God changing our hearts. The day you got saved. And then he begins to write on that heart his epistle of what he's done for you and for me. And my life and your life then lines up with God's spirit. And now God takes you and that spirit and that epistle and that letter. And he ministers life and light to other people. Through you. By them reading what's in your heart for God. Through your spirit and seeing what God has done for you. And will do for them through plain speech, telling them of your hope. And hope in the Bible, we looked at it a couple times today. Put a little note in there. It isn't, I hope I'm saved. It isn't hope there. It's the hope in the Bible anytime you find it. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. He's my hope. And every time you find the word hope, it's a reference to him. This is the New Testament ministry for you and for me. This is what we ought to be ministrating to other people. This is why the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Because you and I have the ability not only to give, uh, give life, we have the ability to give light. You and I have the ability to take uh, people who are dead and trespasses of sin and give them life and then give them light. But it all starts with what they read in your life and my life. And that's really what it comes down to. And that's why he's taking the time in this chapter. And next week I'm going to show you a key thing that he talked about in here. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to show you one of the greatest models in the Bible of this illustration of this chapter in chapter 3. We'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. I'll see you Thursday night. Don't forget your softball applications are out there in the deal. We got one last load of packs in I didn't know was coming. So if you want to get one of them, grab one. They will be the last ones we get. But let's have a word of prayer and uh, we'll be dismissed.